If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 15. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, the black pew Bible in front of you is on page 10. Deuteronomy, chapter 15. Deuteronomy, chapter 15. There are any number of ways in which an agreement between people can be made, can be uh, confirmed, uh, can be ratified. There is, of course, the classic and age-old pinky promise. There's the good old handshake. There is the, my word is my bond. Some of you might feel that about your word. There's also legal contracts, which many of us are quite familiar with today. And there are covenants. Uh, a covenant is usually a formal, solemn, and sometimes sacred binding, a sacred binding agreement between two or more people. In chapter 12, God stated to Abram his promise of land, of seed, that's descendants, offspring, and of blessing. Now here in chapter 15, we will see God confirm or ratify the promise with a covenant ceremony. Last week, we saw how God reaffirmed to Abram the promise of an heir, the promise of descendants. Abram was looking around at his life, looking at getting older, not having an heir, not having descendants, wondering if his trusted servant Eleazar would be the one to whom his, his, his uh, heir, who would be the heir of, of Abram. And God affirms to, or reaffirms to Abram that in fact he would have an heir, he would have an offspring, he would have a biological son, he would have descendants, he would in fact become a great nation just as God had promised already. In spite of what Abram saw, as limitations. And humanly speaking, there were limitations to the promise of God. Abram and Sarai were not young people. God's promising them something of a seed. God's promising them something about a land, and it's occupied. Even though Abram saw these limitations, in spite of them, verse 6, chapter 15, verse 6, tells us that Abram believed God and that God counted it, his faith, his belief, to him, to Abram, as righteousness. Last week we understood that what was being introduced or what's being communicated here in verse 6 is what we call justification by faith. That being declared righteous before God is done by faith. Being made right with God is done by faith. By belief in God's promises. Here, Abram is believing what God had said. And for you and me today, we must believe what God has said as well. An heir, the seed, was not the only promise that God had made previously to Abram, as we have said. Abram also was promised not only descendants, but that the, those descendants would possess the land of Canaan. God stated that promise in chapter 12, and then in chapter 13, and now here again we will see in chapter 15, which brings us to verse 7, as God spoke to Abram after 
justification by faith, verse 7 says, And he said to him, that is, God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur, out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. This all seems to have taken place uh, the night after, or the day after, excuse me, uh, what happened in the first six verses. And you'll remember that God tells Abram to step outside, and it was nighttime, and to look into the heavens and says, number the stars if you can, and you can't, and so shall your descendants be. After that night, it's the next day, and God says this to Abram, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. After this visual illustration of the night sky, God reinstates or restates his promise. He reiterates his promise of the land. To give you this land to possess. What is the this land? It's Canaan. It's the land that he was in. This land. God makes this statement by reminding Abram that what? Look at the first part. I am the Lord. God doesn't just say, you're going to get the land. He starts with, listen, Abram, remember, I'm the Lord. I'm Yahweh. I'm God. And what did I do? I brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. I brought you from a pagan place. I brought you out of that life. I started something. I brought you out of it. I did it. It was not Abram's idea for him to possess Canaan. It's not a political matter that Israel's land is Israel's land. It is God's appointment. It is his divine promise. I am the Lord. And what did the Lord do? He brought Abram out of Ur. And God referred here to Abram, referred Abram to the origins of his own story. Remember, Abram. Remember, remember where you were. Remember what I did. I did something. I did it with a purpose, God is saying. I did it with a reason. I had a plan to bring you out, to give to you, to give to your descendants this land. What God started when Abram was in Ur, he would bring to completion sometime later. Well, to this promise, Abram asks or petitions God in verse 8. But he said, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, back in verse 2, we saw this the similar, not similar, the same way to address the Lord. Abram uses the same thing. Oh, Lord God. And what we found then is what we see again is that Abram is respectfully praying to God. This is, this is a recognition that God is master and he is servant. He is coming to God in that position. He is not coming with demands. He is coming with a request. Now, some people read Abram's response here and may wonder, is he questioning God? God, you just said, you will give this land for us to possess. And then Abram says, how will I know? Now, some people could see that as doubt. They could see it as questioning God's promise. Uh, the book of James tells us that, that when we ask of God, we shouldn't doubt or else we are a double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. In the book of Luke, there's a man named Zechariah who would become the father of John the Baptist. 
And when he was told that his wife would, would, would bear a son, he said, how, the, the angel told him this, and he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 18, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And because of this question, because of his unbelief, we find that he was unable to speak for the entire pregnancy of his wife Elizabeth until the child was born. Well, he, here in verse 8, Abram's saying the same word, isn't he? How? Zechariah says, how? What, what, what's the difference, we might ask? Well, the difference is that the Bible clearly tells us that Zechariah was doubting. How, how can this be? I, that doesn't make any sense, God. That's not going to work. No, no, that's not what Abram's doing here. Uh, of course, God knows the hearts and, and we can't see the hearts. But clearly in the Gospels, it tells us that Zechariah is, is doubting when he asks God why he's doubting God. When Abraham asks why, or excuse me, how, he's not doing this in unbelief, but he's, he's asking or he's requesting for assurance of the promise. What is he doing? He's asking for a sign. That's what he's asking for. Which again, throughout the Bible, we see just that. We saw it with Gideon. In Isaiah chapter 7, it says that they, they seek a sign of the Messiah. And what would that sign be? Isaiah chapter 7, verse 40, 14. That a virgin would conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Emmanuel. That's the sign. This is more, as we said last week with Abram's other prayer, this prayer as well is similar to the, to the man in Mark chapter 9 who says to God, I believe but help my unbelief. There is a sense in which, yes, there's faith, and yes, there's need for a reassurance to continue to believe, which we all can relate. Well, following this petition, the Lord divinely orders Abram to make preparations. Look at it in verse, starting in verse 9. And he said to him, that's God said to Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, and he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now this seems weird, right? Let's be honest. He's, he's, he, he was told these particular animals, he's cutting them up. Uh, there, there are other animals trying to eat the animals. This seems like a strange occurrence to us, and it is a strange occurrence to us, but it would not have been a strange occurrence in the ancient Near East. This was a custom, a, a custom of a covenant ceremony for the transaction, in this case, the transaction of land. And Abram would have understood this custom. He, he would have known about it. So when, when God tells him to do it, he, he does it. He's not saying, what, what, what are those for? Why would I do that? No, he does the very thing that God asks because he knows that this is uh, what's, what's happening here. It's, it's a custom, it's a ritual uh, for a covenant. Now we'll see the word covenant in verse 18 in just a minute. But again, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. Uh, the Hebrew word for, for covenant means to cut Jeremiah chapter 34 uh, talks a little bit more about this, this idea, this ceremony. 
And the prophet Jeremiah says, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, this is the Lord speaking, Jeremiah writing, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. So Jeremiah 34 is referencing this same ceremony of this division of animals, the passing between the two parts as ratifying this covenant. They divided the animals and then the covenanting parties would pass through or pass between the halves of the animals. And in so doing, they're confirming the pledge or the pact and they're indicating something, as Jeremiah points out. They're indicating that if one of us does not keep up the other end of the bargain, our end of the bargain. We will become like these animals. It's a self-imposed curse of death if they don't hold up their end of the covenant. The covenant with Abram, though, has some differences, which we will see in a minute. But to be sure, what we can know is that covenants are kind of a big deal, to put it mildly. It's a matter of life and death. We have so lost the seriousness and the sanctity associated with covenants in our day. Take, for instance, the covenant of marriage, which often we don't even call a covenant of marriage, and yet it is. This covenant is between two individuals before God. So it's actually three parties. This covenant has been so transgressed, so diluted of meaning, so diminished of of sanctity and solemnity that the marriage vows itself mean very little to nothing. Maybe some of you who are married this morning can remember some of your marriage vows. The marriage vows are, are not conditioned Upon the love of the other. It's not actually what you said in your marriage vows. What you said in your marriage vows was till death do us part. We didn't say till the other one stopped loving us. We said till death. We have lost the sacredness of marriage. And therefore is why marriage should not be entered into lightly or unadvisedly. Now, to be fair, there are spouses who break the covenant of marriage. That happens. And due to this sinful reality, God does, in fact, in certain cases, make specific exemptions for those marriages to be dissolved. But those are the exceptions, not the rule. To be clear, God's view of vows, oaths, pledges, covenants is much different than ours today. Take, for instance, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, that says this. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. If you said you're going to do it, do it. That's what God is saying. Verse five, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. 
It's better to not enter into a covenant at all if you do not intend to keep it. And that certainly would include the covenant of marriage. Well, this is not only about the covenant of marriage, and it is not actually about the covenant of marriage here with Abram, but we're using it as an example. Back to Abram. Abram is making preparations from what God has said. And in verse 11 here, we're seeing he's protecting the animals. And next we see what the Lord does in verse 12. Verse 12 says, And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So at this point, now it's the end of the day. Abram was put into a divinely induced sleep, we see in verse 12. We can remember back to chapter 2, when God looks upon creation and determines that there's no one for Adam. He puts Adam to sleep, and he takes a rib from his side in order to make Eve. In both cases, both Adam and Abram are asleep while God does all the work. What's the point? The point is that, that this is a work of God. What's about to happen in the next few verses is, is not, it's not Abram's doing. It is God's doing. We are told that a, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. One writer says that this terrifying darkness reflects the human emotion that is inspired most often by Yahweh's presence. When we see God show up in the Bible, and this is not a light situation. No one's taking things lightly when God shows up in a manifest form like this. And then the Lord spoke. And he first here speaks about how the, possess, how the possession of the land would come about. Look at verse 13. And the Lord said to Abram, know for certain. That's a great way to start something. Here's the word of the Lord. Know for certain. This, this is going to happen, Abram. That your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possession. Derek Kidner writes, The covenant must be carried through in the teeth of opposition, which is what is pictured in verse 11 with Abram warding off the birds, and by means of great judgments, which is what verses 13 and 14 tell us. And the judgments... Certainly, if, if, you, if you know the storyline of the Bible, it sounds a lot like enslavement of God's people in Egypt. And that's exactly what God is prophesying here. He's prophesying that Abram, your descendants will inherit the land. But before, they're going to sojourn in a land that is not theirs. That's Egypt. They'll be servants there, slaves there. They'll be afflicted for how long? For 400 years. Now that's a round number. Because when we get to other places in the Bible, it's, it's 430 years. It's a round number. And I will bring judgment on the nations. God's going to judge Egypt, which we know the 10 plagues in the book of Exodus. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. If you remember the end of the, the, the plague stories, that they plundered Egypt by taking possessions. Actually, the Egyptians gave them possessions. They plundered the land as they left Egypt. That is, the children of Israel did so. The next, uh, next, the Lord spoke about who would possess the land in verse 15. 
and 16. As for you, he's talking about Abram, you shall, not, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried in, uh, in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So who would possess the land? Not Abram. <laughs> God, is, God is making a promise to Abram, but Abram's not going to see the fulfillment of it. Abram's going to die. God is prophesying here, telling Abram that you're not actually going to possess the land. This is for your descendants. You're going to die. You're going to die in peace. You shall be buried. Good word for burial here. In a good old age. And then what? And they shall come back here. Who's the they? The offspring. The descendants of Abram. Again, the promise is to Abram's offspring. And God is confirming that it is certain that they will do just that. We see when. They come back in a fourth generation for the iniquity, the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now the fourth generation here in uh, verse 16 is, is equated with the 400 years in verse 13. So four generations and 400 years are, are used as the same thing. So what is God saying? He's saying after these 400 years, after these four generations, then the descendants will come back into the land. And why? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Do you know that God has got a lot of things going on? He's got the stuff going on with the children of Israel, right? But he has something going on with these Amorites too. We get so locked into our own life, don't we? We can't imagine that God actually might have a plan for somebody else too. We complain about the weather as though our, our needs for the weather are the only needs in the world. I don't want to keep cutting my grass. Lord, make the rain stop. And it doesn't matter what anyone else needs. It could, could it be that God has a bigger plan than my life? A bigger plan for the world, for our area. Well, here, God has certainly a plan for the children of Israel. And there is a delay, these 400 years. But there's also something going on with the, the Amorites. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. There's a period of time that God is permitted for the Amorites to get things right, to repent. 400 years. We find that they don't actually do it, do they? And yet the timing here, the timing was God's plan. He had a plan. He had a plan for Israel. He had a plan for the Amorites. We may wonder, and we look at the world, we may wonder with the psalmists and with the prophets who say, How long, O Lord? How long is this going to keep going? Whatever the it is. Make it stop. Surely the Lord's coming now, we might say. And yet, what we know of God is that God is good. And that God is patient. That God is long-suffering. That God is all-knowing. And that God is slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love. That he has plans that are are greater than our plans. Thoughts that are higher than our thoughts. Thoughts. And that is kindness. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. The delay of God here, both in the Israelites and in our day, may may seem just like that, God's delay. And yet it is actually God's perfect, sovereign timing and his generous opportunity to repent. Which means to say this, if you're still alive, There's an opportunity for you to repent and be saved today. The time will come when it is too late. As of this moment, it is not too late. 
God's timing is perfect. And what seems like delay to us is nothing of the sort. The message to Abram and to you and me is that God knows the end from the beginning. He is sovereign. He has a plan and it is a perfect plan. And we can trust it. You might look at the world today, your life today, and your neighbor's life, and your friend's life, and say, this does not look like perfect to me. It doesn't mean that everything is good. That's not what I mean. But it means that God has a plan for all of it. And he works all things together, Romans 8 tells us, for good. That does not mean everything is good. Don't misread that verse. It means that God works it together for good. And the good ultimately is to be conformed to the image of Christ. We see it in verse 28 of Romans 8. God was forecasting to Abram here. This should have, and did in some ways, encourage Abram in his faith and in his choices. If you had a message from the Lord that said, this is what's about to happen. I've made a promise to you. I'm going to keep the promise. But you... This is what's going to go on in your life. You're not going to see the promise, but you can know that it's coming. In many ways, God's promises did, in fact, encourage Abram. And for you and me, God's promises ought to encourage us as well. One commentator writes this, For Abram, God's message was clear. In spite of the prospects of death and suffering... That's the enslavement in bondage. His descendants would receive the promises. For God assured it. Know this for certain. So Israel could be encouraged by this at the Exodus, for instance. As well as in the subsequent times of distress. When during the Babylonian captivity. God's solemn covenant assures the chosen people of the ultimate fulfillment of his promise in spite of their times of suffering and death. Some of us look at our suffering and say, well, where's the promises, God? And we're reminded as Kent Hughes writes, suffering precedes glory. Suffering precedes glory. Glory is coming for the Christian, but suffering comes first. Well, God was not done yet. After the promise and the preparation, the Lord would cut the covenant. Look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Moses is writing here and he sets the scene. As the day is ending, it grows dark and we are told of a smoking fire pot and this would have been used to purify metal so purification, and a flaming torch, which has been used for light. This, this here symbolizes God's presence. Well, what we're getting here in these two symbols is what is called a theophany. And a theophany is a visible, visible manifestation of God. It's God appearing to man in a visible manner. We'll see this, or we would see this later in the next book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, when Moses is walking and he comes upon a bush that is burning. And then a voice speaks from the bush. That is a theophany. That is God manifesting his presence in a visual way. Both these symbols incorporate fire, 
which represents God's unapproachable holiness. On Mount Sinai, we see fire again, another covenant. We see fire again. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29 tells us that God is a consuming fire. So the, the sun had gone down, smoke, smoke, fire, a flaming torch passes between the pieces. And in so doing, God is binding or God is sealing the covenant made to Abram concerning the land of Canaan. One commentator summarizes the message here. Abram's descendants would get the land or God would die. And God cannot die. That's the message. God passes through the pieces, self-imposing a curse if he does not keep his end of the bargain. And God cannot, he cannot die. Therefore, this promise is sure. In verses 18 through 21, the boundaries of the land and the inhabitants of the land are detailed. Look at verse 18. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. Or that could say, I've given this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, to the river Euphrates. The land of the Kenites and the Kenzites and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Pezzarites, and the Rephim, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Gergashites, and the Jebusites. In chapter 12, God says to Abram, I'm going to show you the land. In chapter 13, he says, I'm going to give you the land. And now here in chapter 15, he says, not in the ESV, the ESV doesn't translate this. You might have a footnote in your Bible if you have an ESV could be translated, I have given you this land, or I have given the land. What's, do you see the progress? I'm showing it to you. I'm promising it to you, and it's good as done. I've given the land. That's, that's God's promises, aren't they? They're as good as done. When God says that it's going to happen, it's going to happen. It's as good as it has already been completed. Abram would never possess the land, and it would not be until the reign of David that Israel would have the land. And ultimately, the, the, final and, and the final and full fulfillment would not come, will not come until Christ returns. But if God promised it, it's already complete. And so it is for us. The promises and the assurance of God was to encourage Abram's obedience and his promises to us should encourage our obedience. And you could go through and, and consider some of the promises in the Bible to God's people. Now, we are not Israel. You are not, and, and uh, most of us are not Jews here this morning. So we are not the descendants of Abram. We are Gentiles, and yet God has made promises to us as well. Promises of the forgiveness of sins. The promises of eternal life by faith. The promise that we, in Christ, are no longer God's enemies, but his friends. The promise that he'll never leave us, nor forsake us. The promise that, that our life has a purpose. That we are saved for good works and to bring glory to God. Our life is not meaningless. All of these promises are true. 
All of these promises will be fulfilled and all of these promises are to encourage our obedience and our faith. Well, I said earlier that this covenant was different than some other covenants. And James Montgomery Boyce points out three ways that this covenant is different than, say, the Mosaic covenant. The first is that it's unilateral. It's unilateral. So when we read that statement from Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says when they they put the two halves of, of the animals, the two parties will pass through. Jeremiah chapter 34, verse 18. In Genesis chapter 15, the two parties don't pass through. Only one party passed through. Abram's asleep. God alone passed through. And he tells us this, that the covenant between Abram and God, this Abrahamic covenant, if you will, is God's covenant to Abram. It is God's determination. The the illustration or the, the point is that the covenant is unilateral. It's established by God and only by God. It's a one-sided covenant in the sense that God swore not to Abram, he swore to himself. In fact, Hebrews chapter six tells us just that. He swore by himself because there was no one greater to swear by. He bound himself. This was all God. The covenant is all God. It's dependent only on God. And therefore it's unconditional. Secondly, it's unending. That means it's an eternal covenant. This was not conditioned. God does not say to Abram, if you, then I will. That's not what this covenant is. He doesn't say, if you obey, then you'll you'll get the land. If you don't mess it up, then you'll get the promise. Some of us do that with our kids, right? I'll make a promise if you don't do X. But if you do X, you lose the promise. That's not what God's doing here. That's not the condition. The condition is himself. And since God cannot lie and he does not change, this covenant then is unchanging, unending, and irrevocable. And thirdly, it is undeserved. God does not make this covenant with Abram because Abram deserves it. God does not give the land to Abram's descendants because they earned it or merited it in any way. This was a sovereign choice of God to give the land to Abram and his descendants. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 6 through 8 say just that. Now you might be thinking this morning, okay, that's interesting. Interesting, but as you just said, I'm not a Jew. I'm not a descendant of Abram. This isn't a covenant to me. I'm not getting, I'm not getting the physical land of Canaan anytime soon. Uh, what, what, what am I supposed to think about any of this? Well, this uh, Abrahamic covenant uh, was not the only covenant that God made. It's not the only covenant that was unilateral, unending, and undeserving. In fact, God made another covenant sometime later. As he cut this covenant with Abram, he also cut another covenant with us. And the Bible calls this the new covenant. The new covenant as God writes upon our hearts. And this covenant is then mediated through Christ, Hebrews chapter 9. Again, James Montgomery Boyce explains this, that that God established his covenant and confirmed it, that's the new covenant, not with the blood of animals. 
This covenant was ratified with the blood of animals. No, no, no. The new covenant was not confirmed that way, but rather the blood of his own son, Jesus, our Lord. During the three hours of darkness, when Jesus hung upon the tree, God moved in the darkness to ratify the covenants. And because of Christ's death, we shall never perish. Neither shall any man snatch us out of his hand, end quote. That's the covenant that you and I can know today. It is the faithfulness of God to his word, to his covenant, that we, so that we can have hope, so that we have security in his promise. See, as God came to Abram that night, God has condescended again. Not in the manifestation of a fire or or a flaming pot or a flaming torch. Rather, he came in the presence, the physical flesh and blood incarnation of his own son, Jesus. Just as Abram was justified or made right with God by faith, so too can we be today. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved. How? Through faith. And that's not of yourself, not of your own doing. It's the work of God. It's the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. As God made great promises to Abram, he makes great promises to us today. As God ratified his promise to Abram, made sure that he understood it and gave a sign of it. God has done it again for us. And it is the person in the work of Jesus today that ratifies, that confirms to us the promise of God of life, not in a land someday, not of more descendants, not that we will be a blessing to other people, but the blessing of God that can come to us through his son, Jesus. And that blessing is eternal life with the Father in the new Jerusalem. So today we can rejoice in God's gracious covenant, in his saving act through his son on our behalf, which gives eternal life to all who would repent and believe. In this, this is a God worth worshiping. This is a God worth loving and obeying. And this is a God worthy of our trust today. And so as we leave here this morning, we leave looking at how good God has been to Abram. And we say yes and amen to that. And then we can look to what God has done for us. And we can see the same God who loved Abram in this unconditional way loves you and me as well. This God who gave what Abram did not deserve has given to you what you do not deserve. This God who has acted on his own behalf without any, any requirement from Abram has acted for us as well. For when we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love for us in that. He died for us. Oh, what a great God who is worthy to be trusted. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning for being a God who loves us so much, who, tr- who we can trust today. Thank you for the work of Jesus. Help us today to trust you. <laughs> Help us to put our trust fully and only in you. I pray for those who are with us this morning who have yet to come to know this Jesus. And maybe for the first time, they heard how how you have so loved the world that you sent your only begotten son to come to die, to be sacrificed for our sin so that we could have life eternal, so that we could be made right with you, brought into peace with you, reconciled to you. God, for those who have yet to come to you, 
I pray that even this morning, they would repent of their sins and they would trust you and you alone for their salvation, the forgiveness of their sins and the hope of heaven. For those who have, help us now to rejoice, giving thanks for your goodness, your patience, and your love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our God.